surround yourself with people who do what you do. Okay, the biggest mistake that I see investors make that, you know, they come to us and they've created some structures and I, I'll ask them, well, who set this up for you? Oh, well, this attorney did. Here, I just dealt with it last week with a really high-end client and the attorneys didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, I sat there and I called them out on it. We got on a three-way call because this client spent over $30,000 for a structure that will not work for them. And you can suss this out on your own just by asking questions. For example, if you, if you were into house hacking, you go into an attorney's office to create a structure for your house hacking, ask them, hey, what do you think about house hacking? How many clients of yours are into house hacking? And if they think you're engaging in illegal activity, that should be a sign that this is not the right person for you to put together your structure. So find people who are doing what you're doing and seek guidance from them. That I think it's the most important thing for investors. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today's guest is Clint Coons. Clint is one of the founding partners of Anderson Business Advisors. He is a real estate investor and author of Asset Protection for Real Estate Investor. Clint brings a fresh approach to utilizing the law to protect their investors and lower their taxes. One of the things I absolutely love about Clint is his ability to take a complicated law or structure and explain it in crystal clear terms. This combined with his dynamic speaking abilities has made him one of my favorite educators in the real estate space. Today, we're gonna dig into the best ways to structure your assets to not only protect you from any potential lawsuits, but to help you grow as well. Clint, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Jeez. You're probably going to say this is boring, but it's vanilla. <laughs> vanilla? That's it? Just plain vanilla? I make ice cream. So I'm always making different flavors, cherries with goat cheese. So I enjoy it, but it always comes back and people say, what do you want? I'll just take a scoop of vanilla. Okay. Okay. So is your homemade vanilla recipe better than like Ben and Jerry's or anybody else out there like that? Well, it depends on what type of base you're using to make it. Is it going to be a custard base or, or a non-custard base, more of a cream milk base? It depends on your flavor profile. I do like it. I prefer a custard base ice cream because my preference, just lower ice content in it when, when it freezes. So it's just one of the things I got started in a long time ago. And it's probably too geeky for you, but I bought a machine from Italy. This was before they had the, the machines over here that allow you to, that have a compressor in them that would actually freeze it as they spin it. I spent too much money on it, but I still have it to this day, probably 15 years later. That is awesome. This is the deepest we've ever got on ice cream. So I appreciate you coming well prepared to take us down this rabbit hole. But yeah. for our <laughs> listeners out there, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? I'm an attorney, of course, but I'm also a real estate investor. And I have a firm that I, as I started with my partner, Toby Mathis back in 99, and we help real estate investors protect their assets and also reduce their taxes. And our firm is comprised of both attorneys that we've hired and strategists, business strategists, but also tax preparers. And so we bring, I think, a unique approach into the industry in that we're not only showing you how to set up the right structures, but we're also discussing the tax advantages to setting up the structures the right way. And then the other side of it is what I always call business planning. And that comes from my own experience in real estate investing. You know, I got started about 14 years ago, actively investing, my partner and I, and now we have, gosh, well over 300 properties, close to 600 doors and different asset classes. 
And the issues that I ran into in building my portfolio and, you know, and working with lenders and knowing how to set up your entities the right way and, and providing them information is really instrumental. And that's the business side that many investors don't understand that if you make your tax returns look a certain way, well, you're probably going to get that through that underwriter a lot quicker than if you come to them with a mess. And I've seen that, you know, I used to make those mistakes myself. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot wait to dig into there. But before we get there, tell our listeners where your journey began in real estate. Well, my journey began as an indentured servant for my father. Uh, he was He's an avid real estate investor. You know, he wanted a couple of kids to go out there and bust tail on his properties. In fact, I was talking to a guy in the gym this morning. I said, we're talking about, you know, running people that go out on the road and run. And I said, yeah, when I was a kid, we'd be driving down the road at 6.30 a.m. And my dad would look over and see somebody jogging on the side of the road. This is 1979. He'd say, look at that lazy ass. He has to go out there and run because he doesn't have any work to do. He should be out working on a property or something. And so that's how I got my start. And then I was a framer in college. And I thought I was going to become a contractor because I, I just enjoy, you know, building and uh, remodeling. But the turn of the economy here in Washington state really changed my perspective, not to mention it rains all the time. So who wants to sit out there and work on a roof in November when it's pouring down rain? And back then they didn't have uh, tie-offs to protect you from falling off. You just rolled off and landed on your feet <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah, I went it's, on to law school. It's funny you say that the three times I've been to Washington, it's been like sunny, not a cloud in the sky, clear. And I'm like, this is beautiful. Why don't more people live out there? Yeah, so you always come in uh, July, August or September. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Did your dad ever own real estate too? Or where did you get the bug to buy real estate and invest in it? Oh yeah, he's an investor. So, I mean, I grew up working on all his properties. He'd buy homes for a buck, move them. And we'd, you know, we'd have a cinder block foundation, hook up all the utilities and do the remodel and then you know, fix the yard and then rent the property out. So you know, there's a lot of different aspects. He had apartment buildings. That we old hospital that we remodeled into an apartment building, I think 50 to 60 units. So that's where it came from. I mean, it's just what I grew up doing. If I wasn't in sports, I was always working on his properties. Yeah, a hospital to multifamily conversion might be the most unique conversion I've heard out there. Yeah, it was interesting, especially when the tenants move out. The treasures you would find as a boy <laughs> going through there that turn around and sell at school. And so I was running little side jobs and <laughs> they get caught and then you get suspended for a day. So. Only because I've heard of this side hustle. Can you tell our listeners what the side hustle was? Uh, porn mags. <laughs> and uh, I sell them 15 to 20 bucks. Kids come by and, you know, they buy them from me. And then some kid got caught at home. Where'd you get it? Clint. Yeah. Snitches get stitches. That's what you should have told them. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to dig into asset protection because that is an area where I have learned a lot from you and your YouTube channel and some of the content that you're producing. Thank you for that. It's super, super valuable very in-depth on a number of different topics. But for most of our listeners out there, they might be new to what is asset protection and why doesn't insurance cover assets that you have in your rental portfolio? So can you start us off with what's the difference between insurance and asset protection? Well, insurance is designed to you know replace risk of loss. If something were to happen to your property, you need it. If your property burns down. I had two properties burned down the last seven months and you know the insurance stepped up and covered us there. And so you need it for that. Now, we also use insurance to protect against liability exposure if somebody is hurt on our property and, or there's an injury that results from maybe our negligence, or we don't have to be negligent, just the property itself. That's designed to protect you and pay out on those claims. The issue with that, of course, is you have policy limits and whether or not that insurance policy that you acquire 
is going to, you know, the claims going to exceed your policy limits, but more importantly, are they actually even going to protect you in the event that you find yourself in a situation where you're being sued? And many real estate investors, they think in terms of liability, such as slip and falls. And there's a lot of those, but there's other areas as real estate investors where you've got problems with lenders. Let's say they come after you for, you default on a loan, you default on a lease agreement because you're running a business. Those types of claims, uh, dog bites, depending on your tenant has a vicious dog in the backyard is classified under your policy that you won't find out about whether or not the claim where the injury takes place, whether it's not even covered under your policy. So there's a lot of things there that don't play in or aren't covered under your policy. Real estate purchase and sale agreements that you violate because you decide to walk away from, you can get sued from a seller in that scenario. So asset protection, it's similar to insurance, but what it's trying to do is cap your cap your loss. So you know going into it, if I create a structure and that and that asset is the cause of the plaintiff's injuries, then my total risk of loss is going to be the value or the equity that I have in that entity. And so we want to then focus on minimizing the amount of assets we put at risk to a potential creditor. And so with insurance, it could be, you know, beyond policy limits, you're still liable or you're not even covered. Whereas with a asset protection plan, you know that even if you aren't covered, your assets are gonna be protected from your personal liabilities. And if something does happen with the asset itself, that your risk of loss is gonna be capped at your equity in the property. So that's in a nutshell, how I look at these two asset protection and insurance. You need both. So people that think they can just dump their insurance because they go with asset protection, well, that's a a reason for the court just to ignore it all and come after you personally. Yeah, I've also heard to like just grab an umbrella policy over your insurance to protect you over the cap limits, et cetera. But I would beg to say that most people out there aren't reading the T's and C's of their insurance policy. And an insurance company is in the business of making money. Mm -hmm. which means that they're in the business of denying claims or drawing out claims if possible. And if you're in this business long enough, I feel like it's not a matter of if you're going to get sued, it's when you're going to get sued. So having that extra layer of asset protection can be super helpful in those situations. Correct. And umbrella policy, remember, it doesn't pay out unless the underlying policy pays. So if the underlying policy denies coverage and your umbrella policy backs away and they say, hey, we don't have to do anything, it's predicated on the first policy covering you. Yep. Yep. One of the things you talk about too is not only how do we asset protect, but how do we structure our business so that we can continue to grow as well? So banks like to have their little checkbox that you have to meet in order then for them to give you a loan. Can you talk us through how some of the best practices on how you structure businesses for to enable them for, to grow? Yeah. So one of the things about real estate investing is that most people are use or they like to look for the QM mortgages because they're going to get that favorable interest rate. And those are underwritten by Freddie and Fannie. So when you approach a broker and they're going to provide you a loan, you know, you're going to go through Freddie Fannie qualifications, underwriting guidelines. And the thing about it that a lot of real estate investors don't realize is that if they take the approach that, Hey, I'm just going to insurance up, or I'm going to hold assets through disregarded LLC. So I don't have to file a tax return to minimize my costs. They're really limiting their ability to grow. And so Why is that? It's because under Freddie Fannie guidelines, when you're using those QM products, qualified mortgages, if I didn't explain that, when you're using that, what happens is that they're bound, that is the underwriter, the lender is bound to basically discount your income from your real estate by 25 to 30%. So they can sell that 
to Freddie Fannie. So if you make $100,000 a year in rental income, boom, you just lost $25,000. How does that impact you? Well, your debt to income ratio on this deal you're trying to close on, it can be a serious, it can hamper your ability to grow. So what I like to tell people, what we do tell people, and I like to structure it is I, I'll tell them to hold all of their investments through different LLCs, through a one holding company. And its sole purpose is to change where that information shows up on your tax return. So in the first example, it all shows up on Schedule E, page one. All your properties get listed out. Those get cut 25% for vacancies. That's why that's what happens with Freddie Fannie. Now, if you hold all those same investments and they flow through a partnership return, a 1065, which gives you a K-1, it still shows up on your Schedule E, but it shows up on page two and it's just a line item there, essentially. So what does that mean? Well, when you're looking to get a loan, they're just going to look at that information. They're not required to discount that number like they are. They're required to discount the information listed on page one, which would be all your properties. So you get a 25% boost in your debt, in your income, which helps you on the debt to income side. And then what I look at is, you know, if you're a married couple, I think the biggest mistake I see married couples make if they're investing is that both of them go on the loan. And again, if you're going to use those QM products, they're typically capped at 10 per investor. So if both of you are going on the loan, then you've just limited your total pool to 10 properties. But if you do one in the husband's name, one in the wife's name, you can go 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 like this, and you, you can gross up to 20 properties and still maintain those more favorable interest rates. So it's looking at the investor and helping them design a, a course with their investing to ensure they look better to lenders and they acquire as many properties as they can with QM lending. Yeah, two comments I kind of want to pull there is one, you were talking about the 10 Fannie and Freddie QMs, qualified mortgages. That That's exactly what happened to me. I got to the stage where I had 10 single families and it's like I tapped out on my loan ability. Of course, you can go out and find private money and credit unions and community banks, et cetera. But for the active W-2 employee to do that as well is very, very difficult. And then the second thing you talked about was really this idea of pooling them into a holding company. Quick question on that. Is that a series LLC or is that a C-Corp? Talk us through how you you structure that holding company? Well, typically what I'm going to do with an investor is I'll look at where the property is located. So if the, wherever the property is located, that's where we're going to create the structure. So if you had seven properties in Texas, Texas is a series state. So we would create a Texas series limited liability company and put each property into its own individual cell. Now that Texas company though, it's going to be owned by a Wyoming limited liability company. So the Texas entity is disregarded. It wouldn't have to file any federal tax returns, but it rolls up into a Wyoming LLC that's treated as the partnership to get the benefits that I just described. And, and so when I create a structure for clientele that, that are investing in real estate, we typically start with a Wyoming entity and its sole purpose is to own whatever LLCs, wherever we're creating them, they all point back to that. And it, it gives you a number of benefits. Number one being privacy. I don't, you know, I don't need my tenants calling me up and telling me how pissed off they are at the property manager that's managing the real estate, looking me up. So I don't want my name on the entity. So they don't know where I live, how to contact. So many people who create their own LLCs, they're listed all over. They're listed as a member, their manager, they're the organizer of the company, they're the registered agent. You don't give yourself much protection from a disgruntled tenant who wants to destroy your character can do so on social media, 
find out where you work, call your employer, harass them. So I think that's important. And then you get the added benefit of having that partnership return. So you could have 50 entities and you only have to file one tax return. And then there's some added asset protection benefits that if I got sued individually, Wyoming, the way we create our structures with a certified security for the membership interest, it makes it very hard to levy on that asset absent going to Wyoming. And then the only remedy is a charging order. And so our structures are, are really designed around protecting the client from whatever goes on with the real estate, but also protecting their investments from whatever mistakes they make in their life. Or, you know, I've had clients before their kid goes off to college and he's in a car accident within two weeks. The next thing you know, the parents are in their sixties and they're sued into bankruptcy and they're having to go back and start their careers all over again because of a freak accident. And they, they lost all of their real estate. So it's things like this, why protection I believe is so important. Yeah. And this is also why I think you don't go to legalzoom.com and just file an LLC because there's a lot of moving pieces to this. And through some of your webinars that you do on Saturdays and your educational content, I've recognized that if you have any kind of co-mingling or bank accounts, or you take a money without, without filing it on your bookkeeping correctly, then you can get yourself into some trouble here. Yeah. And that's key. It's not only, you know, keeping good books and records, but it's also about ensuring that your operating agreements are, are there to protect you. Because a lot of people don't understand the language that is necessary, because unless you get sued, it's never going to see the light of day. So you could j- just scribble something on a piece of paper, call it an operating agreement, and you're going to be great until somebody asks to see it. And then they're going to point out deficiencies. There's a case out of Utah earlier this year where a guy set up a Nevada LLC, and basically the whole structure collapsed on him because he did a number of things he didn't understand how that operating agreement was intended to operate. And the plaintiff that was suing him personally, that had this judgment against him, they just started eviscerating everything that he had done with his LLC. They said, well, this isn't your operating agreement. You didn't follow your operating agreement. Therefore, that move doesn't count. This move doesn't count. Then they just went to the judge and judge gave him access to everything he had inside of there. So it is really important in the event of a lawsuit. I mean, if you're going to go to all the trouble to set up the structure, then you make sure that you're doing it the right way. Yeah, yeah. And this is where return on investment too. I mean, it may cost you a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks to set this up correctly, but it could save you millions down the line. One of the things you talked about that I don't want to breeze over was putting properties into cells. Is that because we want to isolate them away from each other? What's the thought process behind that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and something that, you know, my own strategies have evolved over time. And when I use the series cell structure, I mean, each cell is treated as an independent entity for asset protection purposes. So if you had six properties in Washington state, I would set up six separate limited liability companies for you. If you had six properties in Texas, since they recognize the series LLC, I'd set up one LLC with six cells. Now, a lot of investors, when I talk about it in those terms, they just start thinking to themselves, well, what's that going to cost me? And they're not looking at it from the right point of view, in my opinion. And I used to do this. I would tell investors, hey, group your properties, you know, more, no more than two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000, $400,000 in equity per limited liability company in maximum five properties because I was just focused on the equity. And then when I started actively investing, I started realizing that that approach misses the whole concept of my investing. My investing is not for equity, right? I have a great portfolio of properties in Houston. 
and it's tripled in value. And you look at it and you go, wow, on paper, that's phenomenal. But does that translate into a different standard of living for me? Not at all, because my rents are what they are. And so you could have $8 million or $10 million worth of real estate, but if your rents is what you're living on, that's what you're trying to protect because you're not eating your equity. And so I realized then that as a residential real estate investor on my residential side, I want to make sure that those properties are in separate LLCs. So if something did happen, I don't lose five properties. Because if I lost five properties that throw off $6,000 a year and a total of $300,000 equity, I've lost 30K in income. And that's why we're investing. That's where you, your, your spouse was able to quit her job. And now she's at home. She's focused on the real estate full time. Whatever it is, why your why for putting the investments together to generate that extra income, do you really want to risk it? Because one lawsuit wipes all that out. I can lose $6,000. Great. If one property goes down. But 30 is a huge hit. And so the income is what I'm focused on. And I tell people, they say, well, Clint, 300 properties. Does that mean you have 300 LLCs? Hell no. Okay. That's just stupid. Okay. Because there comes a point where you have critical mass, meaning that I probably, let's say I have 30 limited liability companies with 10 properties per LLC. And and those 10 properties, maybe they equate to $500,000. I could lose all 10 and take a $50,000 hit, but I have 29 other limited liability companies thrown off $50,000 a year. It's not going to change my lifestyle. Okay. But if you have five properties, and you take that hit and you lose all five properties, guaranteed to change your lifestyle. And so I tell people, when you're investing, there comes a time when you get up to 15, 20 properties and start grouping them because now you can take on more risk. When you're starting out, you don't know what you don't know. And and that's when you're prone to make the majority of your mistakes as well. So you need protection even more so than someone at my stage of my investing career, because I know more now than I did when I first got started. Yep, yep. And that's where I, I'm a strong advocate of maybe your first one, you probably you don't need an LLC, you, you might be okay. But once you start getting up to three to five, you really need to take this stuff serious to make sure that you're protecting your income and the value of the properties longer term. Yeah, and you know, you brought up something there too. People always ask me, when do I create the limited liability company? If you're using a QM to, to finance your deal, there's no reason to run out and set up an LLC because you're not going to be able to close in that LLC anyways, if it's residential property, you're closing in your own name. So focus more on getting the deal done before you focus on setting up that limited liability company. I see a lot of people make that mistake. They get so hung up on the asset protection aspect of it that they lose sight of what they should be doing, which is investing. Yep. You mentioned not being able to close an LLC. Is that because usually LLCs have to be established for two years before they start looking at your bookkeeping and your P&L? Freddie Fanny guidelines, residential four units or less, you can't close in business entity. You can transfer it in after the fact, after closing. They changed their regulation underwriting guidelines 2018. And I think then it was 2019 for the other uh, to allow that. It used to be, you know, people say, well, it violates a due on sale clause and they could accelerate your mortgage. That's no longer a concern, but they will not allow you to close in a, your broker won't allow you to close in an LLC because they got to sell it. And Freddie Fanny wants to verify who the borrower is. And it's just, they need complete transparency. Whereas when you go beyond four and you're in, say you're doing a, a five or six bucks, something like that, then you'll close in the LLC. 
Now, when you close in a limited liability company, you're using a commercial loan. And when you have a commercial loan, of course, you're going to pay a higher interest rate. So that risk premium is built into it and they allow you to use business entities. It's the best answer I've heard on that so far. Thank you for that. <laughs> I want to switch us to estate planning and mm -hmm. passing businesses down. I feel like a lot of us are focused on growing while we're in this stage of life, but we're not thinking about the reasons why we're doing it and multi-generational wealth. So I guess, can you give us some best practices on how we should set up our businesses for estate planning and passing these on down to our heirs? Well, the best thing you should, the most important thing you'll ever do is create a living trust. And Again, what do we tend to focus on first? The LLCs and put together the business entities and the estate plan comes second. But you can work, you know, 30, 40 years, build up a sizable portfolio, not have an estate plan in place at the time you get clipped as you're walking down the street and you're killed. And what's going to happen to it? I mean, we all think that, you know, our kids are going to take it and run it and manage it the right way. But there are things that occur in their lives, you know, divorces and lawsuits that, could seriously jeopardize your assets. And so I'm a firm believer in creating a plan that is going to preserve what I have. And then I want to take it a step further. I want to create generational wealth, not just for, for our kids, but for our children's children. And the only way you can do that is to ensure that those assets remain in trust, that they're going to be there for multiple generations, continuing producing income. And great, incentivize, you know, my kids are incentivized to invest. Our daughter, she's closing on her fourth property right now. And, and she is 24 years old and she's going to pick up her fourth rental property. Now she has the advantage that I, you know, I buy packages. And so I peel a few off and, and sell her some properties, but still she sees it and she understands it, what she's wanting to do. But at the same time, you know, when, when we're no longer here, my wife and I, it's going to be there for them, but they don't have the ability to sell those properties. I mean, it's kind of built into they could sell a few depending on the circumstances, but I want to preserve and protect them. So if they get divorced, if, if they're involved in a lawsuit, the issues of those assets then being liquidated and dispersed out isn't going to happen. And I know that they'll always be there. And you incentivize the kids to, to do things in life. And I, I, we told both of them, they said, listen, you know, if we pass away and you say, hey, there's a million dollars in income coming in every year. We're going to sit around and, you know, play video games or work in a candle factory because I don't want the stress. Well, great. Then whatever you make, that's all you're going to receive from the trust. So you build incentives in there to keep them motivated. I know I'll never have a problem with that with our kids, but you never know down the line, two generations. Yep. Yep. I love that. One of the things that's popped up in my life recently is a couple of health scares that have made estate planning and thinking about this more pertinent. So I'm going to ask a direct question for personal use, but what are some of the things we should be thinking about when we're entering estate planning? So I've got rental properties, LLCs and assets and all that kind of stuff. How should I even be approaching that when I'm, I'm thinking about this conversation? Well, it's who's going to control it. Right. So this is a conversation I had or my wife and I have with our son. He, he's he's an attorney. He's currently working for Deloitte. He's going to come over here in another two weeks. He's going to start working for me at Anderson. And he is under the impression at one point in time that since he's an attorney, he should be in control. And the thing about it, as I, as I explained to him, is that you don't know enough about real estate investing yet, where I would feel comfortable putting you in control of the portfolio. Now, your sister, on the other hand, she knows a lot more than you based on her investing. And she's been a PM, a property manager and stuff when she was going to college. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to put those kids at odds with one another where one is making all the control decisions. So when you're putting together a plan, you look at your assets and you say, hey, maybe I need different people to manage different assets. 
And then when it comes to distributing those assets, maybe you have somebody else that understands your family and your wishes and they handle the distributions. So the idea that you just appoint your children as the successor trustees, the people are going to manage everything, I think is short-sighted depending on what your goals are. So I would look at that as creating your plan. And then B, what I'd look at is, you know, is it generational that you're trying to build or do you just want to leave it to your children and then or your beneficiaries and then they can take it from there and do what they want with it. And you can always change it, you know, as you go about, because your estate plan is revocable, amendable, restatable, anything you want to do. But those are the, the key issues that I typically tell people to focus on, you know, you know, your kids have different phases in life, boys versus girls mature at a different rate. I know I did. And I've seen it a lot, even with my son. And so you want to make sure that you recognize that and you're helping them, but you're not enabling them. Yep. Fantastic. Any other things that we missed? I'm trying to think for the listener out there that's got a couple properties, anything else that we missed that we want to make sure we highlight before we end our last segment here? Well, I just think that if you're an investor and you're starting out and, and you're trying to figure all this stuff out, and you're seeking advice, okay? Surround yourself with people who do what you do. Okay, the biggest mistake that I see investors make that, you know, they come to us and they've created some structures and I'll ask them, well, who set this up for you? Oh, well, this attorney did. Here, I just dealt with it last week with a really high-end client and the attorneys didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, I sat there and I called them out on it. We got on a three-way call because this client spent over $30,000 for a structure that will not work for them. And you can suss this out on your own just by asking questions. For example, if you, if you were into house hacking, you go into an attorney's office to create a structure for your house hacking, ask them, hey, what do you think about house hacking? How many clients of yours are into house hacking? And if they think you're engaging in illegal activity, that should be a sign that this is not the right person for you to put together your structure. So find people who are doing what you're doing and seek guidance from them. That I think it's the most important thing for investors. Yep. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got early on in my journey here is if your lawyer doesn't invest in real estate, get a new lawyer. If your CPA doesn't invest in real estate, you better get a new lawyer because they're the ones that are going to help you save a lot of money. Correct. Well, I want to switch us to our last round here. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what's a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Oh, gosh. Well, my favorite book was Unbroken by Laura Hildebrandt, Louis Zamperini. And just, you know, how life can throw at you a number of challenges and it's how you approach those challenges and persevere that ultimately is going to build your character and define who you are at the end. And so that's that's my favorite book, I would say, that, that I've read. And I still, you know, I'm thinking about rereading it again. Love it. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every single day. What are some of the habits that you do every day? Well, I mean, it's, I get up in the morning, I typically get up at 4.30 and you know, I'll read Fox News, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. I look through all those, those news outlets just to see what's going on out, out there and, and what's important for what I do in the business. And then I'll go to the gym and then uh, I go to work. And it's pretty much regimented that I do the same thing day in and day out when staying on that schedule because it just helps me focus uh, when I do that. Do you have a favorite gym exercise? <laughs> Actually, right now it's it's working on my legs because my wife's always complained that I don't have a big enough butt, you know, to fill out my pants. So, 
So I'm doing a lot hey. more squats now than I ever used to and uh, deadlifts. I'll tell you, go running and cycle. It's been the best thing for the glutes. Oh, does it really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had foot surgery a number of years ago and that kind of, they told me, because I used to run on a treadmill a lot, and he said, oh, you just got to shorten this toe because I was having metatarsal problems. And yeah, that just messed me up even worse. <laughs> well, our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Wow. Beyond cycling will help your glutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's always, it wasn't so much, so it was done in a negative way, but there was a guy that I, when I first started out, I started working for and it was, he was a business associate and I was offering some advice and, and he, and he looked at me and he goes, how much did you make last year? You know, I was in his, in the kind of the industry. And I said, I don't know, 150 grand. He said, I made 10 million. He said, when you make 10 million, that's when I'm going to start taking advice from you and taking it seriously because you're not in my shoes. And so, yeah, you may be bright and you're getting up there, but you're not there yet. He said, you, I basically told me is that I have more to learn from him than he can learn from me. And, you know, it's kind of stuck with me is that, you know, when, when you hire people and I look for people, I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. Okay. I want there to be other people that are smarter than me because that's going to challenge me and make me want to continue to grow. Because when you're green, you're going to grow. When you're ripe, you're going to rot. That's just the way it works in life. And so if you're not challenging yourself, that's why I like to read so much is that I feel like I'm always in moving forwards and not staying stagnant or going backwards. Yeah. It's the age old advice. You'll never be criticized by someone doing more than you. It's always by someone doing less than you. Yeah, that's true. You know, I run the business that way as well. I mean, we've built it up to 500 employees with offices in different states and uh, having a key C-suite of individuals is really, really important. And I realize, you know, when I go around them, they know more than me about things and uh, I'm glad I have them there. Yep, yep. Our fourth one is, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? I would say that I'm gonna have, celebrate my 30th anniversary here, wedding anniversary in a couple of weeks. And so, you know, it's kind of unheard of. Not many people can say they've been married that long anymore in our society. It's just a lot of people view it as transitory and uh, was able to stick with it and persevere. And I think a lot of the same things that I bring to the business and, in you know, in my marriage as well, our marriage that we had with them, others, we looked at it as a journey and that you had to stay invested into it. I mean, just when you hit a difficult spot, you don't turn tail and leave. Okay. And, and I've been through those with this firm, you know, you go without taking a salary for six to seven months to keep the doors open, to keep the employees paid, could have very easily shut it down or could have done other things that made me more money, but you know, I was focused on, I was committed. And so I think that's what I'm most proud of. To be a guy that looks like he's 25 and married 30 years. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I got married when I was 12. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. If I could do that, I would say that it would be Anthony Scalia would probably be the one that I would like to sit down and have a conversation with. Why? Because he just had a phenomenal grasp of the law and how it is applied. I mean, you look at what's going on right now with decisions in the Supreme Court and in the way his mind worked. I always just relish reading the opinions that, that he authored because they were so logical in nature and the way he approached it and the way he thinks. And 
you know, I try to think the same way. And, and when I have conversations with people, I'm not afraid to say, listen, I don't know it. Okay. Because a lot of people now have opinions on stuff they don't know about. And one of the ways I, I typically disarm people is if I've read it, I'll say, you know, say it was an opinion. I'll say, have you read the opinion? No. Well, that pretty much sums up then your knowledge of what was stated and, and what actually the reasoning behind it. Because if you haven't taken the time to invest, to educate yourself, then how can you form an accurate understanding or opinion of something? And so many people, and I, I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. We're quick to say, oh, well, this is the way it is, but you don't know. So I liked his measured approach. Some people would say it isn't, but uh, the way he reasoned things out. Yeah, I love that. Because regardless of what side of a spectrum or an issue you're on, if you have uninformed opinions, then go read the opinion first, right? Correct. And I got to look up the facts. Yeah. 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 I got to say, businessman, real estate investor, I did not expect you to go back to your roots and name an attorney. So, or (laughs) a Supreme Court justice, I guess, to give him the proper respect he deserves. Yeah. Well, I would have said Bork. He was right up there as well, but most people don't realize who he is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Clint, fantastic conversation. I got to say, you're one of the most valuable people in this industry who I've learned from a distance from for a very long time. So honored to get this chance to get to speak to you. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about Anderson Business Advisors and everything you guys got going on over there, where's the best place we could point them? No, I would ask them to, if they'd like to, they can attend a tax and asset protection workshop we teach for real estate investors. My partner and I, we hold it every couple of weeks. Uh, It's on a Saturday. It's seven hours. You'll sit down and it's via Zoom. And all they need to do is go to this link. It's aba.link forward slash ICE. Perfect. We will leave those in the show notes. And I can say I've attended one of those before. Fantastic content for anybody out there that's learning more about taxes and asset protection. Clint, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.